Good morning again. Okay. There you go. Good morning. There we are. We're with it. Good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> hey, throw that person out. Um, by the way, coldest night of the year, a couple of weeks. Um, we're praying it's not the coldest night of the year. We've already had those. But uh, I'm walking, <clears throat> and a whole bunch of others of us are walking. So if you want to sponsor somebody and it need, you want it to be me, then feel free. But we have a table, I think, in the foyer as well. So uh, listen, if you're not going to walk, hey, give us, uh, support us and support the Samaritan Center, actually, with a few bucks, and that would be great. Let's stand together, and we're looking at the book of Jude. We're on our second last installment, and next week we will talk about the magnificent benediction. But today, we are going to talk about verses 22 and 23, and we only have one verse and it is in your color, it is in white, and so on the count of three, you're gonna read it. One, two, three. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Wow, you guys are all over it this morning, eh? You sound fabulous. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks for your love for us in Jesus Christ. We are amazed by your generosity. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit that you have, through him, made everything that you have accomplished in Jesus available, applicable, and possible in our lives. And Lord, we ask today as we look at your word again that you would give us voices to speak or a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, but particularly when we go out into our neighborhoods, our homes, our families, Lord, into our communities, into the places where we work and where we get education and where we buy and get our services, that we would live out what it means to be Christ followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus. So we ask these mercies in Christ's name and for his name's sake, amen. You may be seated. Now, I have told you before, uh, several times, that Jude loves threes. And this is Jude's 13th triad. Now, the word and in our text, of course, connects uh, our text this morning, verses 22 and 23, with what we talked about last week. And last week, we talked about the fact that Jude says to us that we are to build ourselves up in the most holy, or we're, sorry, we are to build ourselves up in your faith. And he says to do that in three ways. First of all, by praying in the Spirit, keeping ourselves in the love of God and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And now he's telling us this. He's telling us to have mercy. And we're to have mercy on three different groups of people. We're to have mercy, first of all, on those who doubt. We are to have mercy on those who are uh, deceived. And we are even to have mercy on the deceivers. So first of all, we respond with mercy differently 
to each of these three groups of people or these three individuals. So the first thing that he says to us is that we are to have mercy on those who doubt, the doubters. Now, this does not mean that doubting is necessarily wrong, that we cannot doubt. Doubt and unbelief are two very different things. First of all, there are many people who have honest, sincere, legitimate questions that we need to respond to. And if we were being honest, everybody in the room and everybody online, all of us, no, long, no matter how long we've been uh, Christ followers, that we've been Christians, we too go through times when we have legitimate questions and doubts. I know that I have. In my own faith journey, I have had questions that have been very troublesome for me. Even in my journey as a pastor, over the years, I have had doubts and I have had questions and I have had concerns that have actually put me into the category of those who are doubters. And the truth is, if God didn't show mercy to me, in my moments of questioning and doubting and concern, I think my story would have turned out much differently. I mean, even the very best and the brightest had doubts. Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 20 talks about the fact that he felt that God had deceived him. You should read it. And then the psalmist says in Psalm 55 verse 17, he says that evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and lament. I will mourn. And the Lord will hear my voice. There are things in the Bible that bother me. There are things in the Bible that I do not like. And there are things in the Bible that I cannot explain. And to add to that, there are things about Christianity, our history, that I find hard at times to reconcile in light of who Jesus is. But I've learned. I've learned that God is not and does not take it as an affront when I have questions and I have doubts. In other words, he is not offended when I have legitimate questions and I have legitimate concerns because there's this. Not everything in the journey of life makes total sense or is understandable or reconcilable. Life is complex and complicated and, and there are things in this life where there are contradictions. But there's also this. Not everything in the journey of faith makes sense. And not everything is explainable and reconcilable. There are not always easy answers. 
And if we are being honest, we have to admit that this is a reality and we may not be comfortable with it or we may not be happy with it, but that is the reality. I have learned that God does not give us enough detail and information to satisfy our curiosity. But he does give us enough to satisfy our faith. Trying to explain the world is difficult. And the temptation to provide simpler reasoning, to give easy and pat and trite answers is always there, but it's not always appropriate. It's hardly ever appropriate. And so when people When I, when we, when you raise questions of doubt, more often than not, we are seeking and they are seeking honest answers to honest questions. And so Jude tells us that we are to have mercy on them. We all know what the word mercy means. Mercy means compassion. It means tenderness. It means giving people what they do not understand. It means pity. Having pity, the New English Bible translation says, there are some doubting souls who need your pity. People need mercy. People need tenderness. People need compassion. People need pity. I need it. You need it. I am reminded of and live these days with eight words that Jesus said in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verses 36 to 38, and if you were here on the first Sunday of of this new year, I talked about these eight words. And these eight words are simply this, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And then it goes on. So that brings us then to the second level or the second group of individuals or people who stray, who are further down the road than the doubters. They are one step beyond those who doubt. These are the deceived. The deceived. Now, regarding the deceived, Luke says in verse 22, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. The deceived are those who have been duped. So on the one hand, we have looked at those who are doubters. These people have not taken the bout, have not taken the bait of the false teachers and false teachings, but they are confused. But the deceived, on the other hand, they have taken the bait and they have swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And Jude says to us that we have an obligation to show mercy to those who doubt, but the deceived who are further along, who have bought into the falseness of what's been taught and who have been duped, how are we to deal with them? And Luke says, save others by snatching them from the fire. 
We are to do that urgently and directly. Save others, he says. Now, of course, when he says saved, we need to qualify this a little bit, and we're not talking about the fact of salvation here. Uh, The truth is that none of us can save anybody. Only God can save people. Uh, John Calvin John Calvin said, and the language is dated, but he said the word save is transferred to men, not that they are authors, but the ministers of salvation. Calvin, although his language is dated, he always seems to make his point. So saving here is the idea of rescuing. It's the idea here of preventing or stopping or helping them to avoid something or to protect them, to shield them. We are told First, to have mercy on those who doubt that we're supposed to do that gently and we're supposed to do that compassionately and we're supposed to do that tenderly. But here we are encouraged with those who are deceived to be more assertive, to be determined, to be forward, to be much more direct. And Jude says, snatching them out of the fire. We all know what that looks like, right? We all know what it means to seize something out of the fire. And then there's this, those who play with fire. When we were kids, just boys, um, my cousin and I, uh, we had a campfire. And my cousin, not me, my cousin, thought it would be a good idea to see what unopened cans of pop would do when you put them in the fire. Uh-huh, oh boy. Well, we put them in there and um, nothing happened at first. Until all of a sudden there was an explosion like gunfire. And when one of those tins passed close to our heads like a missile, we decided this was not a good idea. And we shut the fire down and we pulled the cans out of the fire. Now the question is here, what kind of fire is Jude talking about? Now, if you remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the eternal fire of heaven, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's works will, be can, will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each person has done. So does that mean that these people who are deceived are going to make heaven, but they're only going to make it sort of by the skin of their teeth? Or is Jude talking about eternal hell fire? And it seems that by the context that this is the imagery that he is portraying, he is talking about the place of judgment, hell fire. And those that are on the verge of going over the precipice of falling into this damnation and into this judgment, we are to snatch out of the fire. But back to our point. 
Some doubters will be persuaded by mercy, by pity, by compassion, by tenderness. But in order for the the deceived to be saved, they have to be snatched out of the fire. In other words, sometimes we are gentle and indirect, and other times we are assertive and direct. Sometimes we get beside somebody who doubts and we put our arm around their shoulder, but at other times we go toe-to-toe and we get up in their face. Now, Jesus was a master at this. To those who were confused, to those who were unsure, and were filled with doubts like the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus patiently and gently presented the truth to her. But when it came to people like the religious leaders, Jesus was much more blunt and direct and up in their faces. But the one that I imagine the most when I think of this business of being gentle as opposed to being assertive is the way Jesus was with Peter. Peter's most colossal and greatest failure is the denial of Jesus at his crucifixion. By the way, just so you know that Peter is the other side of the coin of Judas. What Peter did and what Judas did is not all that different. It just shows how the outcomes can be so different. Judas didn't have to end his life. He could have found forgiveness. But Peter betrays Jesus and John tells us that, and I love the way that John does it. In John 21, he says, and when they had finished breakfast, don't you love breakfast? I, you know what I love? I love eating breakfast out. Every Sunday, and Scott gets really annoyed with this, every Sunday after church, we go home, and we, if we don't go out, we go home and we make bacon and eggs. I've come home in the evening, and Ruth and I have said, what are we going to have for dinner? And we've said, let's just do up some bacon and eggs. Breakfast is so wonderful. (laughs) And when we go out after church, it's usually at Tutti Frutti's. But this week, I went to Cora's. And this is what it says. And when they had finished breakfast... Now, this is after this colossal failure and betrayal. And after breakfast, anybody ready for breakfast? Mm, Me too. Let's get this over. No, I'm just kidding. And when when they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's it. That's it. And it goes on. But at other times, Jesus is much more firm and assertive with Peter. 
And Jesus is telling the boys, the disciples, they were all boys, sorry ladies, uh, telling the disciples that he is going to be, go up to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified and Peter says, no way, ain't going to happen. And Jesus says, or the Bible says in Matthew that he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. I have a friend of mine, of ours actually, who calls this standing in the way of sinners. He preached a whole sermon on this idea of standing in the way of sinners from Psalm 1 verse 1. You know what it says, right? Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners. And Ronnie says that there are three ways that we stand in the way of sinners. First of all, we stand in the way of sinners because we are one. We can't help it. And he says, secondly, we stand in the way of sinners sometimes as obstacles because sometimes we are so hypocritical as Christians that in order for people to come to Christ, they have to almost crawl over us to get there. We are such an obstacle. And then he says... We stand in the way of sinners as rescuers. As a rescuer snatching others from the fire. Now, there are people, there are situations, and there are times when snatching from the fire calls for drastic measures. So to change the metaphor a little bit. My dad in his day, my dad's been dead for about almost 20 years now, but my dad in his day was quite a strong swimmer. And in his day, he was the leader of the YA group, which in those days was called the CA group, which is Christ Ambassadors, and that's anywhere from 25 to 105 years old. And uh, so on this particular outing, they decided that they wanted to go to this place called the Pine to swim. And so my dad was leading the group and he went and they were swimming and having a great time and they had one of those ropes. And I remember being there, as a, I was just a boy, like I'm thinking, like I can still remember this, but I was a boy, maybe five or six years old, but I still remember this. And they were swimming and all of a sudden there was this panic and I heard people saying that one of the girls that were swimming didn't come up back up to the surface. And my dad dove back in and went down and discovered that, and this is the story that came out after that, her foot got tangled in something at the bottom of, the, of this place, this swimming hole, and she was drowning. And when it, the story was all over and they brought her back to the surface, he brought her back to the surface and she was resuscitated and got her life back and began to breathe. My dad actually either sprained or broke his thumb when he dove in. I don't know what happened there. I can't remember exactly. But sometimes, in order to snatch people from the fire, we gotta dive in. And there are times when we gotta go in again and again. And sometimes even to our own detriment, our own pain, snatching them from the brink of disaster. And then we come to the third group. And the response to them is even more assertive and decisive than the response to the second group. The third group are actually the deceivers. 
And I find it interesting, to say the least, what Jude, or more profoundly the Holy Spirit, or more profoundly God, says how we're to respond to them. He says at the second part of verse, in verse 23, he says, To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained with flesh or by the flesh. Now, that both convicts me and it blows me away. So I want to deal with the second part of that statement and then I'll deal with the first part after that. Now, the second part of that statement says hating. Hating. Even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, that surprises me. It always feels strange to me when the Bible tells us to hate. For example, in... Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 and 8, it says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to love and a time to hate. Now, a time to love makes sense, biblically. But a time to hate, is that not surprising? That the Bible actually tells us to hate. Romans chapter 12 verse 9, Paul says, let love be genuine and hate what is evil. But hating gets our attention. It gets our attention. Hate. Now I want you to put your seatbelt on. Because I got to tell you something. You ready? You got your seatbelt on? Now, Jude. Jude is being graphic here. Matter of fact, Jude is actually using coarse language in this text. Now, I want to be as delicate as I can be with this. My wife is on the edge of her seat worrying now. It's okay, Ruthie. Garments here refers to the clothing that people of that day wore under their tunics. It was their underwear. Mm -hmm. To be stained or polluted means to be stained by bodily function. Now that stinks, doesn't it? Now, I don't think I need to explain this. I think we all understand what this means. And I think we all understand how disgusting it is. One translation says, polluted by the flesh. Now, in fairness, in fairness, some translators, some commentators have suggested that this is referring to the uh, clothing of a person who has leprosy. In Leviticus, of course, chapter 13 tells us that a leper's clothes was um, contaminated and it had to be burned. But either way, whether it's talking about a leper's clothing or it's talking about dirty underwear, Jude is being graphic. He is trying to shock us. 
Jude wants us as his readers and the recipients of this letter to feel intense aversion. He wants us to feel disgust, even to the point of hatred. And when we think about underwear that belongs to somebody else, or even our own for that matter, nobody wants to handle somebody else's dirty underwear. Talk about hanging out your dirty laundry. Now this is where I want you to put your seatbelt on. Now God says something similar through the prophet Isaiah. He says to the prophet Isaiah that we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. David Curry, uh, David Curry, for those of you who don't know, was a former pastor here, a very good preacher, and a bit of a crazy guy. And um, sometimes, never mind. Um, and I remember at Brayside, he was preaching in the morning, I was preaching in the evening camp, and I remember David telling this story about uh, going to Sher- Sherbrooke, Quebec, and working on his Irene's, his wife's dad's farm. And I think it was a dairy farm. And David made the point, he said that, because he was, you know, trying to earn his, I don't know, acceptance or love from Eileen's family. And uh, he said, you know, he said, I've learned that at a dairy barn, when you start to clean out the stalls, when you muck out the stalls, he says, you cannot clean out cow manure without getting some on you. And that's what God says through Isaiah. He says, you got some on you. I got some on me. We got it from thanks, Adam and Eve. But we also get it by walking in this world. We get some on us. And Isaiah gives us this picture of before and after. He gives us, first of all, this picture of us before Christ that we are people with stained garments. Now, when you think of your stained garments, your past before Jesus got a hold of you, you may hate it. You may be embarrassed by it. You may be ashamed of it, of what you used to be. And I wonder if that isn't that one of the reasons why Jerome called these the garments of shame. But I want you to hold on to that first part. Rather, that second part, so we get to the first part. And the first part, Jude says, to others, show mercy with fear. Now, the question that comes to my mind is this. Why should I, why should we show mercy to people who are deceivers? I think that's a valid question. But there's this. Somebody said that mercy is not always explainable or justifiable. 
It is in itself the justifier. Now here is the essence of mercy and compassion. Now there is no question that God holds sinners responsible for their sin, but God also reaches out to them, to us, to you, to me, in mercy. And it is an unusual mercy. Wendell Berry wrote, God does not go... Here's the love of his human creatures, not for himself or for the world or for one another. To allow love to exist fully and freely, he must allow it not to exist at all. His love is suffering, it is our freedom, and it is his sorrow. That God would love a world that would break his heart is unusual mercy. That God's love contains unconditional mercy and pity and compassion to such an extent that it led to crucifixion. And Jude wants us. Jude wants you and me. Those of us who have experienced God's mercy He wants us to show God's mercy to other people. And does it not follow? We, you, me, who have experienced and understand the wonders of God's mercy that we would seek to be living demonstrators of that mercy to others. But sadly, sadly, we find that there is a irrational streak of inconsistency in us because how we deal with other people's sin is different than how we deal with our sin. When we look at other people's sin, we usually think, you know, it's because of depravity and because of a flaw of character in them. But when it comes to us and our sin, it's usually a mistake or it is a lapse in judgment. And then there's this. I was reading just the other day, a couple of weeks ago, out of Matthew's gospel, and, and a text that stood out to me, and always seems to stand out to me, is Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus is talking about what it will be like in the, the days when he's coming, as compared to the days in, Noah, in Noah's time, and he says these words, He says, and I'm picking it up at verse 40, he says, then two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. Now, when I was a kid, this was a text for the rapture. But in another context, maybe mercy says that our hearts are with the one who was left. Or even in Matthew 25 about the division of the sheep and the goats. Mercy does not consent to giving up on the goats. And most of us, if not all of us in this room and online, we have our list of goats. People who seem hopeless to us. 
that we really don't know what to do with, but Phil Riken said these words. One way to test your grasp of God's mercy is to ask how we treat other sinners. Got that? Other sinners. How do you respond when you encounter a homeless person or a gay prostitute or a drug addict or a drunk or whatever co-worker or family member or even church member is most difficult for you to deal with? Usually our response excuse me, is to get angry and wonder why these people can't get their act together. And he goes on and says that is hardly the response of someone who knows God's mercy. Who knows that the bondage of sin can only be broken through the mercy of the cross. You see, I think that my mistake at times, and I think your mistake and possibly our mistake is ignoring the texts in the Bible that talk about God's love. That say that God loves the world. That tell us that God's love is unconditional. So think about it. Pastor Kevin and Leanne are finally back after being gone for five years. (laughs) looking very healthy, I might add. And I'm not using this because you're back or because it's your favorite verse. I'm using it as an illustration, so no flack from you, please. Take John 3.16, the most memorized, popular, familiar text in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I memorized that as a child. How many of you memorized that? How many of you know it by heart? Raise your hand. Exactly. But how many of you know and were taught to memorize the next part? John 3.17. And John 3.17, of course, says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. It's always appropriate For those of us who have been shown God's mercy to show that same mercy to others, even in our opinion, those who we think do not deserve it. And this is the fear factor part. To others show mercy with fear. We respond to God's mercy toward us by becoming merciful ourselves. And God help us if we do not. If God loves the world, and he loves the world unconditionally, and I love God, does it not make sense that I prove and evidence my love for God? by showing and demonstrating and practicing his love and mercy and compassion and pity, even to those who do not deserve it, in my opinion. So maybe our prayer this morning needs to be this. God, show us your unconditional love and mercy for the world. And if we pray that prayer and we mean it, it will change us. It will change us. 
I want you to just close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to invite the musicians to come and I want to pray and then I want to lead you in a prayer. Father, it is something for us to get our heads and our hearts and our minds and our lives around your mercy, your tenderness, your compassion, your unconditional love. Because first of all, it blows us away. And second of all, it's hard for us to even comprehend that because we are so prejudiced. And we are so fallen ourselves. But you're God. And you have given us the Holy Spirit. So that we can begin to be molded and shaped in the ways of your mercy in the ways of your compassion, in the ways of your love, in the ways of your tenderness. And so I ask now, in these next four or five minutes, that your grace would abound to us. And Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would continue now to lead us to guide us, to speak to us in Christ's name. I want to lead you in four prayers. And this is not about your neighbor or your spouse or your kids or anybody else. This is about us as individuals in this room and online. Here's our first prayer. God, Help me to know your love and mercy for the world. I want you to just close your eyes for a moment and pray that prayer honestly in your heart. God, help me to know your love and mercy for our world. Father, let it change us. Let it transform our hearts and our spirits. Show us your heart for the world. Show us your mercy, your unconditional love. And not just this morning, but throughout the next weeks and months show us would you look up here's our second prayer father would you show me the people who I categorize as goats and would you grant me mercy and compassion toward them here's what I want us to do I want you to close your eyes right now we all have our, says, I said a moment ago, we all have our lists of goats that we think don't deserve God's mercy or we just have blown off and have just ignored. Let a face, a name, a person come into your mind, come into your eyesight, come into your heart of somebody that you would classify as a goat. 
And I want you right now to pray that God would change your heart toward that person, whether they are known to you or not, or you just know them from a distance. And that God would give you mercy and compassion for that person, for that face, for that name, for that soul. Just pray for them. And just pray that God would give you mercy and grace toward them. Change my heart, O oh God, toward the people that I do not like, who I find are enemies of you and enemies of me, and enemies of your church, but they are still people. Show me your love and compassion for them. And name their name. Look up again, would you please? Our third prayer is, Lord Jesus, would you show me someone who is deceived and help me to be merciful toward them? Now this one's a little bit more hard and you may have to think about this beyond and So I want you to close your eyes again. And I want you to ask God that if you don't know of anybody that at this moment who is deceived, who's been led astray, then that he would make it possible for you to interact or meet or your journey intersect with their journey. Father, there are many who are deceived, but you love them too. So we are asking, Lord Jesus, that you will allow us to intersect and interact with that one who is deceived. And Jesus, if we have a name, if we have a face, if we have a person, we pray for them right now they would begin to discover the mercy and the love and the tenderness and the compassion of our God even through us in your name would you look up again and this is our last one Holy Spirit would you help me to be merciful to those who doubt and allow me to come alongside of them Do you know anybody that's got doubts? You know a name, a face, a person? If you don't, you will. Just give us some time. Not today, but next couple days, next couple of weeks. Close your eyes one last time, would you please? Father, we ask now in Jesus' name for your grace for those that doubt that they will know your love and your mercy and your compassion and your pity and that they would know it through me as you make opportunity, as you open doors to bring them alongside of me and me alongside of them. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.